Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the Seven Millennial Podcast, a community dedicated to ambitious and successful millennials. Today with us, we have David Hauser. He's a serial entrepreneur and founder. He's founded Grasshopper and sold it to Citrix in 2015 for $170 million. He's also founded Chargeify and a few other ventures in different industries. He is a writer, a speaker, and a serial investor. David and I will talk about his road to success, his lessons learned, how he's funded and founded so many companies. He'll be discussing how you can find your passion, how you can create wealth, and how to multiply it, how he's bootstrapped so many companies, what are the trends that he sees for 2021, and how to integrate your personal and professional life and to ensure that you always do what you love doing most. He'll be sharing his tips on how to grow, scale, and plan for success, and so many other things. You'll get so much value, you wouldn't want to miss this episode. And with that, let's jump into the show. You founded Grasshopper with, I assume, bootstrapping it throughout the whole time you were in university. You raised it to $30 million in annual recurring revenue, then got it acquired by Citrix, then founded Chargeify, made it profitable, got it acquired, then returned path, did it all over again. Then you are an angel investor, a writer, a speaker, a mentor. How do you balance it all? So I think balance is really the wrong word. It's really integration, right? So I, I try to integrate everything I do into my life. So it's much less about balance. Like it's not like stop email at a certain time or anything like that. It's like, how do I do the things I love all the time? I like it. So then how do you set priorities for what matters to you most? Do you choose certain amount of things? How do you do it? So priorities are really important to me because I stick to a routine. So I try to have at least just one thing a day that is the most important that day. And now that priority may change day to day. If it's a different company, if it's a different task or whatever it is that I might be working on. But knowing that if I accomplish that one thing that day, that I've accomplished enough in that day, I think that's the easiest way to prioritize for me. I like it. One thing. Now, is there a limit on how many companies you can get involved with at a time? Obviously, I think there's a logistical limit, but it really comes down to what the actual work is I'm doing. I was having a conversation with someone recently, and I think what's important is while I'm switching between companies, I'm not context switching the type of work I'm doing. Right, so um, I think that makes it a little bit easier. Where I'm doing a similar type of work across different organizations, so my brain can continue to function in the same way, even though it's a different company or a different task. Right? Unlike if I'm doing, you know, lots of thought work and then doing lots of task-based work, that's a much more difficult thing to switch between. Right? Now, what about the companies that you focus on? All of them seem to be very different. There's some product companies. There's some SaaS companies. There's some e-commerce, marketplace. They all require different skills. How do you manage that? Yeah, so I think the commonality across them is actually more than you think about. And there's actually a benefit in that we can take things that we learn in a SaaS business and apply to a direct-to-consumer business or the opposite, right? But really what we do is, you know, at the highest level is run the same type of processes, which is paid marketing, metrics, and then our meeting rhythms internally those things are across organ, all organizations, and it doesn't matter what industry they're in. So you mentioned paid marketing. What are the best uh, channels right now in 2020, I guess 2021 going forward? Where do you put your money? Yeah, so obviously today, you know, I think the largest scale channel is Facebook, Instagram, but that's not actually what I find most interesting. What's most interesting is where are the new channels going, right? And if that's TikTok or if that's other places, like where are channels that are less expensive 
that have scale and volume that I may need to learn about and understand. So I always want to be testing. So yes, we can optimize current channels. That's important. But our goal is really finding new channels. And that changes month to month, year to year, obviously. So if there's not a process to do that, I think that's where we fail. So we've created a process where we're always testing. So does it mean you have a TikTok account? I don't personally. Um, I actually don't like Facebook or Instagram. Uh, doesn't mean that we don't use them and utilize them, but being on it is different than utilizing it for sales, right? Totally, totally makes sense. I thought maybe you could recommend some tips on how to grow your following on Instagram or you know TikTok. We actually wrote uh, a guide that covers you know how to to grow a subscriber base or influencer base on TikTok as well as how to use it for advertising because a lot of people have asked us that question. Um, so that will be available probably end of this month um, for free and we'll make it available to everyone um, because everyone kept asking us like, how can I do this on TikTok? So it's been a topic. Yeah, there's a lot of entrepreneurs that I've interviewed and they've grown their following. They tripled it, multiplied it by 3000% just within two months by doing TikTok and Instagram Reels. So it's been really, really beneficial. And I assume it will be on your website if people subscribe. Yeah, davidhauser.com. It'll be available there um, and it'll be free to everyone. Sweet. I subscribe, so I'll get it first. Now, do you think that everyone has in them what it takes to be an entrepreneur or do you think it's something you're born with? Yeah, so I I think being an entrepreneur is something you're born with. Um, You can learn the skills to be a better entrepreneur, right? Like how to read a balance sheet, how to manage people better how to negotiate, like those are all skills you can learn. You can go to school or take courses or whatever, but that kind of passion of being an entrepreneur is something you're born with. And then I think there's two different groups actually. You know, so one is a group of people who want to be entrepreneurs on their own and build their own thing. And then a group of people that is a larger group of people that have that entrepreneurial spirit and will function much better within an entrepreneurial company where they have some structure, they have some, you know, kind of like a high level guidance Um, but they can then utilize that entrepreneurial spirit to do something within an organization on their own. And that's the type of people we look to hire. So then how do you know if I'm a person who is trying to figure out what I want to do and I just graduated high school and I want to figure out if I want to go to university, maybe start an e-commerce business, grow my TikTok following, build an e-commerce brand, be a founder, create a SaaS company. How do I find a, my passion, my niche, and figure out if I have what it takes to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, so I I think it's just inherently something you know, right? Like the person that is going to be the entrepreneur just kind of just does that, right? And probably questions less, even if it's not logical, should I get a job or not get a job? Or should I do this? Like they probably don't question those things as much as just go do them, right? I think that's the the difference. Um, And then your other question is, you know, how do you find that passion? I think it's just really looking internally, like what are the things I care about? What are the problems I want to solve? And then start doing those and you'll quickly migrate and find where you fit, right? And the key to that is doing something rather than just talking about or thinking about. So then I guess I love how you, you know, positioned it, you know, just do something. When do you know that things don't work? That you should stop doing the idea and, you know, cut it and find something else? I like to learn this quite early, actually, and encourage people to ask for money and people to pay them quite early. Because that's the real decision point. Like when you say to someone, hey, this service costs $1,000 a month and they say yes or no, that is a clear path and answer to your question, does this matter or not, right? And if you get too many of those no's, you have to think, okay, 
Am I not providing something that's valuable? Am I providing it to the wrong market? Like there's lots of questions you can go through, but that's the ultimate decision point, right? Like asking a customer, are you going to pay for this today? Right? That's what matters. You know, so people kind of talk about this idea of pivoting all the time. I actually think people pivot too early, right? And this is the reason why you have to find what you care about and a problem that you have a desire and want to solve because then inherently you know what it is. You don't have to do primary research. You don't have to interview customers. You don't have to do all these things that people encourage you to do because you know the problem. I like it. So then when you were creating the software companies, how did you narrow down the problems that you cared about? Because I'm sure you cared about a lot of things. Yeah. So let's take Grasshopper, for example. It was quite simple. Like I had other businesses that I couldn't find a good solution for answering my phone, right? Like either it was a house phone or a cell phone. It wasn't very professional. I couldn't transfer people. So like inherently I knew I had this problem. And I thought, okay, well, I know the technology exists as a whole, right? Like big companies have used it forever. Why can't I utilize this as a smaller company? So really what I did was I repackaged technology that was available to others and sold it to a market that I knew and understood, right? And I knew it because I struggled with it every day. And it just bubbled up to the top, right? There's so many times you get a phone call on your cell phone and you don't want to take it or you can't take it and voicemail and all these problems happen when you're running a business. It bubbles up to the top. I like it. So then there's a misconception or I guess this whole idea or dichotomy where, you know, some people say that you're supposed to start your business out of passion and continue doing it no matter what for the first three, four years, you might not make a dime. And there are some people who say, no, you got to start a business with a monetization strategy, with the way you're going to raise money and an exit strategy in mind. What's right? Yeah, I think it's probably somewhere in between. I think you have to have that passion. You have to um, have conviction on what you're building um, and drive towards it. But early on being, you know, how do I generate revenue for this? I do think that the piece I leave out and as important is the exit plan. I think if you're building to an exit plan, um, you're not building a good business, right? Compared to how do I just build a good sustainable business that gets you to an exit, right? Like just naturally um, compared to how do I get to an exit? It's just a change in mindset a little bit, um, but I think it's quite important. Okay. So the idea would be you don't have to know exactly where you're going, but how, how far should you plan? Two yes. years, 12 so, months? I mean, if, if you're growing quickly, you can't really plan more than two years in advance. After that, you're kind of guessing, right? And you know, I think it's more important to figure out like, what are the things I can do in the next six days, six weeks compared to six years, right? Like, what are the things I can do today that are actionable and real? I think that's much more valuable than what does a model look like five years from now or how valuable is this for an acquisition? Obviously, we're all going to guess that it's valuable because otherwise we wouldn't be doing it, right? I like it. Uh, so my background is in finance, debt or equity, and at which time should you do either or? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm predisposed to just bootstrapping as long as possible. And I think that that just gives optionality to founders. So, you know, later on, they can raise equity or debt. Debt is traditionally cheaper as a whole, right? But there's clear reasons that you would take equity. But I think at a later stage, right? Like once you've figured out product market fit, you figured out how to grow. And now if you're taking on equity, it's much more of like, okay, I know I put a dollar in, I get $10 out. I need to do that more and more often, right? That's when equity can generate tremendous value across the board compared to being dilutive and 
you know, restrictive and some of the other problems that come with raising equity. But again, debt is a great choice because it's not dilutive, right? And if you, in that same you know, equation, know the results, debt is actually super cheap, right? I got it. So then for you, I know now you're investing in businesses that are a million plus and are profitable. Before you invested in a lot of startups. And I'm sure I would love to hear your stories about the things that you did well and maybe the things that didn't work out. What's the common denominator between the entrepreneurs that didn't do it so well? I actually spent some time looking back at the portfolio and the most interesting learning I found was the founders that send monthly or quarterly updates by far do better in the long run, right? And I don't know if this is a function of, you know, processes they have internally, you know, if they're more engaged, like there could be lots of reasons, but those that send a simple email update on a regular cadence and continue to do so, do so through the ups and downs consistently do better in the long run. Interesting. So then, and I guess at which point do they come to you at an early stage? At which point do they come to you asking for cash? Just with an idea or used to be with an idea or do they have to show some traction? Yeah, I never really invested in ideas. It had to be at least some traction. And then, you know, my requirement for traction has increased over time um, to be at least a million dollars a year in revenue, more so because that's where I like to work, right? So I like to help companies scale and get from a million to 10 million or 10 million to 20 or, you know, scale up those different amounts compared to how do I get to the first million, which is more of product market fit. Got it. So then I guess until you get there, it's bootstrapping and friends and family rounds, maybe an angel investor. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm people to, you know, bootstrap even longer than that, right? Like how do you bootstrap to 10 million or $20 million, right? Are there any strategies on how to manage your cash flow properly or maybe some tips on making sure your top line and bottom line are healthy? Yeah, so I think a lot about positive cash cycles. So um, how do I collect money from my customers before I have to pay out my vendors for the, the cost of goods, right? And in a SaaS business, this is a little bit easier to, to do mechanically than it is in a CPG company or a direct-to-consumer company that has inventory of products. But still, I mean, the idea is the same. Like, how do I shorten those cycles as much as possible if I can't get them to a positive? But at Grasshopper, we collected up front, right? We paid out bills 60, 90, 120 days terms, right? So we will have collected the revenue for that cost um, at least 30 to 60 days before we pay it, right? So that right there gave us capital in essence, right? Because we, we had a spread and that was just based on terms that we negotiated with vendors. I like it. So then are there some things that you see constantly young entrepreneurs focusing on too much on and then maybe some things that they should focus more on, but they somehow neglect? Yeah, I think a lot of people focus too much on planning on the early stages and it becomes a lot of talk. Right? Like, how do I do this? I'm worried about this. And it's, all, it's important to think about those things, especially at the early stage, it's much more important to just do things, right? Like actually go do something rather than talk about it. And the more things you do means the more learnings we have. So either positive or negative, but we're moving forward consistently. So I think that is one. And then two, probably focusing on the wrong metrics, right? So We've thought a lot about vanity metrics and like, these are the things that people think, you know, what really we need to think about is like, what is revenue inbound from customers? What's my gross margin? Like quite boring things, right? That aren't fun, but 
That's the real unit economics that matter in the business. And I think that's what we should focus on. I like that you mentioned metrics. So I guess now with uh, you know, the digital age and a lot of companies uh, making apps, making websites, making platforms, what are some of the data collection metrics that should every company have? Some APIs that have to be there for everyone. I can't think of any that necessarily have to be there for everyone except when you think about financial metrics, right? Like gross profit, net profit, you know, what, what do those things look like? But when you start to talk about an application itself, I think it's very important to think about forward-looking metrics or leading indicators compared to lagging indicators, right? So number of customers doesn't tell me very much, but number of new customers in the last six days or seven days does, or cancellations, or things that are going to tell me predictively what's going to happen moving forward, percent of engagement of customers in the first seven days, right? Like things like that are much more actionable, right? Because if I know engagement has gone down in the first seven days, which then leads to cancellations and less customers, right? That's very actionable compared to just number of customers. I won't see the results in number of customers for 30 to 60 days, right? I want to reduce that window and look at metrics that really tell me where things are going, not where they have been. Got it. Okay. So then during COVID, I'm sure it's been a really crazy time for everyone. What about you and your companies? How has it affected, I guess, across the board versus different industries? Yeah, so we've seen interesting changes. In the CPG business, we saw a spike of people stocking up because it's a food product and then kind of a leveling off of that after that. In our delegated business, which provides virtual assistance to people, you know, we've actually seen that business more than double uh, as I think people have shifted work patterns and you know, are more flexible to hiring remote staff and look at cost savings and other things. Uh, another business we have, you know, went down probably 95% because, you know, we worked with pretty much exclusively casinos, restaurants, quick service, hospitality, hotels, right? So I think that's a function of industry. So it depends would be my answer. But in general, I think what we've seen happen is trends within industries be sped up by magnitude of years, right? So Take, for example, work from home, that was a trend that was happening, right? What happened during COVID was that had been sped up by two, three, four, five years to where we are today, right? And maybe it shifts back a little bit, but I don't think it goes back 100% to where we were. So it is accelerated trends that were already in place. Okay, so let's explore that. In terms of trends for COVID and work from home, what do you think is going to look like over the next two years, three years? Do you think we're going to move to more of a freelancer economy where workers will no longer be employed by big corporations and everybody's going to be more of a freelancer and you can move around the world and work from anywhere? What's your opinion? Yeah, so I don't think that the structure of work has changed. Um, and keep in mind, we're talking about obviously knowledge workers here, right? Like they can work from home. So I don't think the structure has changed necessarily where you know we would shift to this freelancer economy in general. Um, I think the structure stays the same, but I think what we've seen is the larger organizations that have been slower to adopt these policies because they believed that having everyone in the office was very important or mattered a lot. They've realized, A, maybe it doesn't matter as much, but B, it can be accomplished without it because everyone had to be home. Sometimes events like this are required to have large companies make that realization, where smaller companies are already on board with that for quite a while. 
Got it. So then do you think there's a trend or an industry coming up during COVID after COVID that's going to be exciting and new in 2021? That's a good question. Um, I actually don't think there's a lot of change. It was acceleration of trends. So, you know, things like, you know, uh, email management and tools around that will obviously increase at a faster clip than they were before. Maybe we saw some bumps like with Zoom and other technologies that were already placed and ready for that type of a thing. But the trend was already there, right? It wasn't new and they just came on and it happened. I think there'll be some interesting things happening around education um, because it's a big question mark at this point. And the, tip, the platforms that exist today are very kind of, you know, old way of thinking, right? So I do hope that as we start to change education a little bit because of COVID, that we see more innovation around that. But I don't think there's like a mass like, oh my God, I have to do this in 2021. I like the education aspect. So I think, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the application Teachable, the platform, I think you invested in it. It's a marketplace for people to go in, teach someone else, kind of like Skillshare, right? Yeah, so uh, I think a lot of these marketplaces, and they're quite interesting because it does allow teachers all over the world to participate in the marketplace, which is very different. So you get different views, different expertise, and access to people that you wouldn't necessarily if you're in a given city. So what's the, I guess, the secret sauce for a marketplace platform to succeed? Because you're not just trying to acquire customers, you're, all, you're also acquiring users, and you've got to do it at the same time, otherwise it won't work. What's the secret? Yeah, so this is the typical chicken and egg problem, um, and makes marketplaces tremendously difficult. And I think that it, it is a careful balance of one curated talent. So um, not just lots of talent on the, you know, kind of the supply side, but carefully curated to have high quality. Quality is very important at the beginning. And then massive demand, right? Because you can't keep quality ta talent without the demand, right? So there's this careful balance. Um, I think the failure that a lot of people make is they overestimate the amount of supply needed and that's when quality drops, right? So they're like, okay, let's get lots of contractors in the door. Well, I'd be much happier with 10 people that can paint houses really well than 100 people that can do it mediocre, right? Um, if I'm looking at it like a marketplace for people painting houses, right? If you are looking for someone in a marketplace, where would you go? What's your preferred marketplace? It depends on the skill I'm looking for. If it's a knowledge worker type thing, uh, Upwork, but I am very dissatisfied with their quality in general because it's just not curated at all. So it takes a lot of effort. Like you have to go through the job postings. You have to create, how do you get the candidate pool down? And then once you have a solid candidate pool, how do you do paid small tasks for them to actually test them out to see who's good? Um, so I may have someone, you know, eight people do the exact same thing um, to find the right one person to continue doing work with. Um, so it's part of a process that I run, but in general, like there is talent there. It's just hard to find. Would there be a benefit in segregation? So like, you know, like Uber, just one thing for one purpose, because that's what I've seen so far. A lot of people take a niche and they focus on it. I think there's one for podcasters, one teachable, like one for a few other things. Do you think there's that's a good strategy? For like writing books. Right? Yeah. Like there's a marketplace for, you know, Readsy that, you know, you can find, you know, writers, editors, book cover designers, like whatever. I do think that that is the, the perfect example of higher quality supply side because they're curated, they're thought through, right? And because of the niche, they're able to say, is this a person talented or not in this specific thing? 
the problem is there's not marketplaces for all of that, right? So yeah. like depending on what you're looking for, depending on price point, like there's a lot of factors. I've used some of those marketplaces like Reedsy, and they're good at times, right? I don't think they're a solution always. Got it. Perfect. Okay, so a slight pivot. Have you ever played Would You Rather on a podcast? I have not. <laughs> okay, if you don't mind, I thought, you know what, I haven't heard that on any of the podcasts, so I thought we will try and see how it works. Well, Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Would you rather never be able to eat meat or never be able to eat vegetables? Never be able to eat vegetables. I love vegetables, but... I, I can't imagine uh, a diet without meat. Like, it just doesn't make sense. Pizza or tacos? Tacos, for sure. <laughs> I like it. Would you rather your shirts be always two sizes too big or one size too small? Two sizes too big. <laughs> I can't deal with a shirt too small. I have like 50 of these black t-shirts. So, I mean, I just buy them in bulk and never change them because it's much easier in the morning. I just pick the same thing. So. Right? Okay. Decision fatigue. That's literally what Steve Jobs does and Barack Obama do. The same clothes all the time. Makes sense. Would you rather someone see all your photos in your phone or read all your text messages? I don't know. I don't, I don't think I really care about either. Oh. So I don't, I don't think either matters. It's like I have, I have zero preference between those two. I like it. Would you rather be creative or logical? Logical. Why? Uh, I, it's just naturally how I think, right? Like I do care about creative things, but my brain works in a very logical way, list-based, task-based, you know, uh, things have to fit together, right? Like that, that's just how my brain works. And do you think that's what basically helped you to fund the company, start the companies and do everything that you needed to do? Yeah, I think it helped me, but I don't think it's an archetype for you have to be this way, right? Like I think it's more about discovering what works for an individual person and utilizing those skills, right? Someone highly creative could do something just as successful and you know, exactly the same things I did in a different way. Um, but I understood what works for me and I continue to do that. I like it. Okay. It's a COVID inspired one. Would you rather have to wear sweatpants everywhere for the rest of your life or never wear sweatpants again? Oh, I never wear sweatpants again. I hate sweatpants. I agree with you. <laughs> I, that was the first time I had to buy sweatpants during COVID. <laughs> I always wear shorts at home, like, because um, I'm always warm. So, like, wearing pants at home would just be ridiculous. Like, it has to be shorts. I feel like it's always hot. Well, you also live in Vegas, right? You're, you're right now in Vegas. So, it, it makes sense. I live in Canada in Toronto, and right now it is cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, we're, we're starting to get to the point of time of year when it's like, 70 degrees and people are like oh it's getting cold out <laughs> would you ever wear a jacket like an actual winter jacket with the hoodie and no. not here uh, <laughs> okay. I, mean, I have one when i lived in boston and when i travel but i, I would never wear one here <laughs> that would make sense uh, okay would you rather be the funniest person in the room or the smartest um smartest why uh because i don't really care like to me, being funny in the room is attention, and I actually don't like attention at all. So to me, it's much more interesting to have interesting conversations quietly with one or two people compared to being funny or the center of attention. Okay, interesting. How do you find, if you're in a big room, in a big area, how do you find a person to talk to? Because you know you can't talk to a thousand people in the room. How do you cherry pick 
the right person? Yeah, so I hate large groups. So this, this <laughs> is very challenging for me. And for a long time, I just avoided them uh, because I didn't want to push my limit of where I'd be. So um, it actually took me a number of years to kind of push past that and figure out like, A, I need to be uncomfortable in the situation um, to be better at it, right? And really, my discovery was like, everyone in the room is just as uncomfortable. Some people are better at hiding it or not talking about it or not feeling it. Um, so I think it's just kind of, you know, awkwardly talking to random people until a conversation starts. But it's difficult. <laughs> I like it. I, I thought maybe you have a strategy like you start screaming or yelling something and then <laughs> yell out a question and wait for someone to answer. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I like it. Okay. So fun and exciting. Would you rather never have to work again or never have to sleep ever again? Assuming that there's no bad health effects. <laughs> uh, I would never sleep again if there were no health effects. I, I love working. I love it. What would you spend your time occupied with? I love all the things I do. Um, I love learning. And to me, every opportunity that I can step into is a learning opportunity. So um, the more of that I can do, the better. Um, compared to sitting around or not doing that, I can't imagine that. How do you decide which opportunity is the right one? Like, how do you, do you sit down in the beginning of the year and you set your goals on what you want to learn throughout the year and then you find the opportunities for that? Or how does it work? So I do think about some high level things like, oh, I want to learn to be better at golf or I want to you know, advance this skill set um, at a high level, like maybe one to four of those in a year. But more importantly, it's like, how do I find ongoing learning opportunities throughout the year, which I could never have thought about at the beginning, right? And I think those are the ones that are far more interesting. New company, a new industry, new way of doing something. TikTok comes up, like I wouldn't have thought about at the beginning of the year. Like those types of things just naturally happen. I like it. Okay. Would you rather have a pause or a rewind button on your life? Pause. Why? Because I like to be logical and think about it. Like, I, I don't think about redoing stuff in life. I, I think about looking forward. So pause gives you time to think and be logical and you know, make the right decision compared to rewinding and changing a decision you made. I like it. I thought you were going to say pause and enjoy the moment. But I like, <laughs> I like thinking and being logical about it. I like it. So in terms of, I guess, learning opportunities, and I know you said you wouldn't want to go back and change anything, but if you could go back to your younger self, what would be the advice, like looking back? Yeah, this is a hard one because I think there's a bunch of things that I could do better. Like I could have been healthier earlier. I could have focused on how I eat and exercise and all those things. But I do think about it as balance and kind of ups and downs over a longer period of time where at that time in my life, working 100 hours a week was both possible and reasonable, right? So I don't think I would change it as much as be more conscious of it. Like I, at the time, I don't think I was making a conscious decision about it. It was just happening to me. So if I was conscious about it, I think the decision would still be the same, but I would have thought about it differently. Um, so that to me is the learning um, compared to like changing it. Like, well, I should have worked less. Mm, maybe, but I actually don't think that that's true. Is there an advice that you would provide someone who's younger, just like getting out there, trying to figure out their life? And Yeah, I would be very conscious of decisions, right? Like I think about this a lot, like, you know, drinking alcohol, right? Like I personally haven't drank alcohol in a number of years as a personal choice, but it's much more about being conscious about it. That, like I can drink it whenever I want, but if I do, it's a conscious decision. I know the impacts. I know how I'm going to feel. 
right? Maybe I want a glass of wine. Maybe I want a, a vodka, like whatever it is, but it's a conscious decision. So compared to like just being limiting no or yes, either direction, um, I know that when I say yes, I know the impacts that are going to affect me, right? I think the same is true in work, right? If I can consciously make those decisions, I may make the same decision, right? But I thought about it differently. So you mentioned taking, I guess, taking risks. So how do you evaluate the amount of risk that you should take in regards to reward? And it goes with live decisions, opportunities at work. Do you have a spreadsheet? Do you sit down and think about it? Do you have pros and cons? Like, what do you do? I probably rush into some things too quickly. Uh, people in my life have told me. I think that the, the way I think about it is much more about risk calibration, where it's a balance of risk to reward. Like, how much risk am I willing to take for the possible reward um, compared to what's typically thought of as entrepreneurs? Like, we all take lots of risks. I don't think that's really true. What I think is true is that we understand how much risk possibly can be taken for the largest reward, right? So how do I reduce risk to the lowest amount for the highest reward, right? And that balance between is the sweet spot of success. I like it. And that, I assume, goes into investing that you also do a lot of. So question, what is the best way to make your wealth and then multiply it? Yeah. So those are two very different questions. I think the best way to generate wealth is investing in yourself. So that's your own business, your own things, building, um, creating wealth in that way. And if you're not building your own thing, how do you create wealth with your job, right? Like that can be reducing, you're increasing savings. You know, how do I quickly advance through my career, maybe spending less time in college? Like there's other ways to do it, but in general, investing in yourself is for building wealth. For preserving wealth in the long term, it's, you know, reducing risk as much as possible. So you reduce downside risk. And the most simple solution is index funds with tax loss harvesting. You don't touch it. You don't look at it. It just sits there and in, it naturally doubles every 10 years, right? Like that's just the law of kind of, you know, returns of the market and interest, right? But you're not generating massive wealth, right? Like you can't go from a million to a hundred million in a short period of time. So is there, I guess, a suggestion, obviously, to each their own, but a suggestion with this COVID market, we've seen what happened to stocks in March, and everybody's thinking right now it could happen again with the U.S. election, the second wave. What do you think is the best way to stash your nuts in, and where should you put your money? Yeah, my, my answer doesn't change. It's index funds. You don't touch them. You don't look at them, right? So throughout this time, there was lots of like talk of like, what's going to happen? In general, the market is up 20, 30% because of tech funds, right? Or tech stocks, right? So when you look at the indexes, now if I had tried to pick and cherry pick, you know, like in the long run, that just doesn't work. So as long as I'm willing to invest in the long run, 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 years, whatever that is, it doesn't matter, right? And if you look back at the data, you could have invested right before the Great Depression literally the day before at the highest possible value, seeing the whole Great Depression and all the problems and still been up tremendously in the long run, right? So it doesn't really matter timing-wise. I like it. Okay, so then going forward, what do you think are the problems that entrepreneurs should focus on solving? Like, what do you see some of the really eminent ones? The question is more like, what has the largest impact to our world and our population? And I think that's one education, and two, food. Those, I think, are the areas that we lack, you know, not just in the United States, but I think worldwide in providing um, those core functions. Uh, so that's 
well-educated people um, that are engaged, understand, um, that can think creatively, not just do rote work and, you know, memorize things, right? And then food, you know, understanding and being able to access healthy, you know, good foods. There are still people in the world who have, that starve, but there are more people who die of eating crappy foods than people that die of starvation. And that's a problem that, that I think needs to be fixed. Um, so those I would look at large categories. Got it. And then what about travel and hospitality industry? Now with COVID, with people not traveling enough, you can't go anywhere, vaccine is not there. What do you think is going to happen? What should people do in those industries? Yeah, so I think this is a, a waiting game, uh, unfortunately, because people want to travel. They're either being restricted artificially by policy or fear. Right. And I think that in time, the fear will go away as we know more. Um, and then hopefully as fear goes away to some extent, you know, uh, artificially restrictive policies will go away as well. So I think the long run, I don't see a tremendous change. The short run, there's obviously problems, right? Like I, if I'm a hotel, I can't employ people and there's no one traveling and all these problems. But in the long run, all of those things are going to come back, right? Like this is not the first communicable disease we've had as a human society. So the people that say this is the new normal, like, I don't buy that, right? Like, you know, and that's not a political statement. It's just, you know, very simply, like, we've dealt with this many, many times before, and we will again. And that's just how it works. So I guess the idea is just hang in there and try to figure out how to make it work. How do I extend my runway as long as possible, right? So if I'm a restaurant, can I survive for a year or two on delivery, right? Or you know, find an investor that can help you with your burn, right? And just help you through this time. Well, I, I guess on this question, how do you then find an investor or how do you find yourself in the right rooms to be with the right people? Like you can't just go on LinkedIn and start searching, right? So how do you prepare for that opportunity to shine? Finding investors is a numbers game, just like sales, right? So it's number of outreach, you know, number of phone calls, number of pitches to closes, right? Like that is the game. So to some extent, finding an investor is just doing a lot of outreach. And that means every channel possible, email, LinkedIn, AngelList, you know, a hundred other platforms, right? Like how do I increase the top line funnel of investors so I can get to bottom line results? I like it. So then the most impressive, I remember you mentioned on one of the podcasts that one of the most impressive pitches you got the guy offered to drive you to the airport and pitch the idea to you. And you loved it and you invested in the business because actually it made sense. Yeah. Any other fun stories or the worst stories, like where the people pitched you an idea, I don't know, in the washroom? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I've had lots of really poor pitches and things that just don't make sense. I think the most disappointing is some of the companies that I supported in the very, very early days, like, you know, when they were just finding first customers and now have become very large, successful companies, and they kind of just ignore the early investors, right? And I understand that at this stage, like, they're raising, you know, $100 million or whatever they're doing. I might not be useful, but they fail to even give updates sometimes, right? And, like, to me, that's not how I would treat, you know, my earliest investors. So that's disappointing. I think the best pitches, honestly, are people that are super passionate about what they're doing and understand how to sell. Right. So like the guy who pitched me in the car, like he understood his problem was my attention. Right. He couldn't get me on a phone call and he couldn't pitch what he wanted in an email. 
So he figured out how to hack my attention, which was, I had a 45 minute drive to the airport. So I think people like that, when they can think creatively about investors, just do better as a whole because they think creatively in their business. That totally makes sense. Other three or five things that you really think every successful pitch should have. So when it comes to pitches, I think it's very important, obviously the team, everyone always says that, but I want to know who these people are that are, you know, going to be able to accomplish what we say. I want to have a very clear definition of the problem. Lots of times I get pitches that are like very convoluted, long statements about what the problem is. And then it gets even worse because the solution is even less clear. So I'm like, a pitch should be so clear that in one sentence I get the problem, in one sentence I get the solution, right? Like literally a slide should be that simple, right? Not these long, complex things, like one sentence, one sentence, and now I have someone's attention. And then the last piece is market size or opportunity. I want to know that this is a large enough market size or opportunity to make this an interesting business. Not like, yeah, I'm going to get 1% of a billion people or whatever, because we can always come up with that. But, you know, is this a large enough market size to make this a 50 or $100 million company um, in terms of revenue, right? Then it's something that is investable. I like it. Okay, so that makes sense. Now, in terms of learning, what is your preferred method to learn and how do you choose the books, resources, the podcasts you listen to? Because there's millions of books, there's millions of resources. So how do you choose that one? I love listening to things. So uh, Audible for books, podcasts, I like to be able to do that in the background. So even if I'm working on other things, um, I'll have something playing in the background so I can digest it. I love long drives because uh, you can listen to a book and be very focused because you can't use your phone. You can't like all of the other things drop away because you have to focus on driving. I, I like uh, visual learning as well. So being able to see things and then do things, right? So hands-on learning, right? Like I can watch a video about golf or I can actually just go hit a golf ball, right? So, you know, that that's important to me and something I learned at a very young age. How do you pick the things to consume? So it's a hard question because there's a lot of content. I generally consume quite a lot of content, both written and audio and video. That's what goes into my weekly newsletter, kind of my curation of that time spent. I built what I think is an interesting way to find books. So I, in essence, gathered all of the top recommendations from people I respect, built a software spreadsheet that takes all of those and finds commonalities. So I want to see you know, what book has been recommended across 10 people and I just started down that list. I started at the top, like the ones recommended the most, and I've just worked the way down. And the ones recommended the most have been amazing, right? So I think at the top of that list was Sapiens, probably. And then there's a few others that kind of start to fall out. But yeah, that's been super helpful for me. Uh, it's available on my website, too, if anyone wants it. I signed up and I looked at the books and holy, they're amazing. And there's a lot of like Ryan Holiday and Sapiens and just so much value. And not just one topic. It's just everything. So it's yep. really good, really good selection. What are you learning right now? And what are you occupying your time with in yeah. a specific area? Yeah, so I'm spending quite a bit of time right now learning about uh, email, cold emailing, email funnels, you know, after purchase funnels, things like that. You know, con contextually, it makes sense for our CPG business, but it's, it's fascinating to me, um, the power of email, because people are always like, email's dying and going away. I, I don't believe that at all. I think email is becoming a better and better channel when people use it better and better. 
So that's the area I'm learning the most in right now. Like, how do you optimize email funnels across all of the segments? And then what's next? What are you working on? What's coming out? Another book? A podcast? Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I never really wanted to write a book to start out with. So I don't know if I'm going to write a, a second one. I'm really enjoying writing my weekly email. Um, that's been personally gratifying and, and a lot of fun. You know, there's lots of new products and stuff we're building at different companies, but that's not the most interesting stuff. Um, honestly, I don't know what's next. I, I'm always looking for where I learn next, and then I'll find what the next opportunity is. That's why everyone should sign up for the newsletter, and they'll, they'll know. <laughs> yep. I like it. Okay, so for every guest that comes on the show, I ask, a millennial is, a millennial should be, and a millennial is not. A millennial is. So I think this is more of a, a thought process more than anything else, not an age. Um, I think millennials uh, think creatively and want to solve or innovate to solve things compared to just accepting what's there. Love it. Now, a millennial should be? Millennial should be engaged, um, responsible, and accountable, um, which is probably comes to the next question, what shouldn't it be? But. <laughs> Correct. A millennial is not. Yeah, a millennial is not the entitled uh, person that some people believe. And you know, I think that when people think about it the right way, can actually be quite, quite creative. Ah, like it. Thank you so much. So where do people connect with you, the listeners? Where do they find you? Give us yeah. everything. Yeah, davidhauser.com. That's the best place. My weekly email newsletter, three to five curated uh, topics that I, I talk about. Also, the book list is there, uh, all that good stuff. I am on Instagram and Facebook. I just don't use it all that much, to be quite honest with you. So you, know, you can find me there. And you know, I, I do try to engage with people over email quite a bit because it's very productive for me and my email address is on the website. So I, I suggest people if they want to talk to me to reach out. They can reach out and you will answer it personally. Yeah, yeah of course. I love that. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, David. Thank you for being with us today. Yeah. Thanks for having me.